Welcome to The Heart of the Cards, a conversation about creativity, inspiration, and dealing with what we're dealt. With your hosts, Dan Green and Eric Stewart. Hey, this is Dan Green welcoming you to Episode 2 of The Heart of the Cards, and I'm joined by Eric Stewart, who you may know from his voiceover work in Pokémon as James and Brock, as well as Kaiba from the Yu-Gi-Oh! series. Eric Stewart is also known for his music, and he has been the epitomous leader of the Eric Stewart Band for decades as the lead singer and songwriter, and we look forward to hearing more from Eric for decades to come. Thank you, Dan. Um, I'm Eric Stewart, and uh, I appreciate that intro. I am joined by the multi-talented Dan Green, who uh, you might know as Yugi and Yami from the Yu-Gi-Oh! series, multiple roles on Pokemon, as well as roles on Shaman King, Sonic X, and many anime series that shape your childhood. <laughs> Hopefully not for the worse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it's funny how we know about each other's careers because uh, they collided together, and that's how we met decades ago. That's right. And that's how we met uh, what, 20 years ago? I think it must be at least 20 years. Yeah. So, uh, somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, no, it's been more. So anyway, last episode we were talking about the call to adventure, a term used by Joseph Campbell. The hero's journey is something that he outlined and many people have used as a template for not only storytelling, but as a way to evaluate their progress through their own life. And we're using it somewhat as a template for our conversations about creativity and dealing with what you're dealt. And another one of the classic thresholds of a hero's journey is having some interaction with a mentor. Think Obi-Wan Kenobi if you've if you're one of the few people who've seen Star Wars. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I had a couple of references in my own life that I could talk about, and I'm sure that uh, Eric does as well. Uh, Eric and I were talking a little bit about this subject, and, and one thing that we also want to make clear is we are by no means professionals or psychologists or anything like that. We're just two guys having a conversation, so none of this is intended to be like we're telling you what to think or prescriptive in any way. But we did think it was worth noting that mentors are, you know, traditionally they're thought of as somebody who, you know, really guides you through your life. And yeah, that's great in that sort of mythic classical example. But of course, that's just in, you know, in the myth form, that's, that's a distillation of many influences in real life that you learn from, that inspire you, that guide you in various ways. So. With that covered, uh, Eric, why don't you kick it off and tell me about some of your earliest mentor or mentor-like figures? Uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that, um, Dan. The interesting thing is, you know, when we think of that mentor, we think, well, I want to be this, so I'm going right. to find someone who is skilled in that trade or whatever, and I'm going to learn from them about this one category. Right. I think with most creative people, it's very hard to sort of narrow it down. I've asked a lot of my fellow singer-songwriter friends, what's the other thing that they do? And it turns out they might draw, they might write mm -hmm. in terms of short stories or whatever. I've asked my artist friends what they do. And then I play a little guitar. Actors do many things. So to find a mentor that is uh, only sort of skilled in one area is great. But that really wouldn't have uh, helped me very much because I, as I was growing up, I really didn't know exactly mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. And um, I would say my first mentor, I think we talked about this in a previous show, um, you know, I went to a very progressive, cool school, which uh, allowed us to really explore our own skills mm -hmm. and not be judged against other students because we never had grades. Mm -hmm. And one of our classes was, I think it started in seventh grade. We had a music class 
my classes were very small. I had maybe 10 to 12 students in this one music class. And Wow, that's that's enviable. Some of our listeners who may not even, you know, have a scope on that. That's a really enviable uh, degree of attention the students get from the teacher. Oh yeah. Which, of course, is the double-edged sword. You can't hide in the back <laughs> and, and draw or make noise or tell jokes without getting called out constantly because you're sitting right in front of the teacher. Um, there's, there's no escape. Yeah. Right. So we had this very cool, hippie, guitar-playing, funky teacher named Mike Fogarty. And Mike was given the job of trying to teach seventh-grade students how to study music. <laughs> now, this was just one of the many classes we had, so it wasn't like we all went to music school. And I think it didn't take very long before he realized that to get us to really pay attention and focus, we should form a rock band. Mm -hmm. Now, this is long before, you know, Jack Black and his School of Rock stuff. This is uh, this is kind of at the time that fire was discovered or the wheel, um, because, you know, that's how old I am. <laughs> but anyway, he looked around the room and he said... <laughs> they just recently invented sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he looked around the room and he said, OK, uh, who wants to play um, drums? And my friend Nick was like, I, I like drums. I'll be the drummer. So, OK, you're going to be the drummer. Uh, who wants to play bass? My friend Tim raised his hand. He, he always liked the bass. Uh, who wants to play keyboards? My friend Martin was classically trained in piano. He'd been taking piano lessons since he was a kid. So, of course, he was going to be the piano player or the keyboard player as a rock band would have. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, I had a four-string guitar. Now, most guitars have six strings. I had a four-string gu guitar that my father picked up at a pawn shop, and I uh, didn't have all the strings on it. So I was like, I, I guess I could be the guitar player. And then my friend Ian was the only one who was brave enough to say, I'll be the lead singer. Um, I've, I've spoken to him recently, and he said, it's only because I couldn't play an instrument. And I'm like, no, no, I've got to say, <laughs> it takes a lot of guts, you know, in seventh grade to be the guy that's like, yeah, and, and I'll be the front man. <laughs> well, so Mike taught us stuff in the class, and we learned, you know, uh, all about classic rock. It was something that kept us interested. But then we basically, uh, we did this for almost, I guess, a, a year. Okay. And then I think he he left. But uh -huh. we wanted to keep him around. Uh -huh. So our parents got together and saw that we were taking this very seriously. And we hired Mike once a week to come and teach us rock songs. We would give him a list and say, we want to learn this Who song, this st song by the Stones, whatever. Here, here's what we want to learn. And he'd come back the next week and say, all right, well, I'm going to teach you. And we rented a rehearsal space. I mean, we're talking like now we're in eighth grade, mm -hmm. right? Big, big time, like, you know, 13, 12, 13. And he taught us all. He, he could play m many instruments. He, he had definitely a vocabulary for all this stuff. And wow. he, he actually helped me learn how to write songs because he explained some of the simplicity of these, these rock songs. Like, hey, it's four chords here. It's this. And it's like, oh, and song structure. And I was so immersed in that. I, I'm the only one of, of course, all of these, my friends, my friend Martin still plays a little piano, but I'm the only one who sort of stuck with it. Mm. And I really thank Mike for uh, believing in these these young men who were, you know, it was hard to corral us. It was like herding cats in the beginning. <laughs> but once he figured out, okay, these guys are going to pay attention to this, we all really dove into it. And as a side note to this great influence for me, I had thanked him on my website probably 20 years ago when I first created a website. Mm -hmm. And I had lost touch with him for many, many years. And, and this is just a message to how important we may be to someone when we, when we might not know it yeah. unless we are actually told. 
As an independent production company, Andromeda greatly benefits from the support of its audience. If you're able to contribute as little as a dollar a month, consider going to our Patreon page. Any support you can give means a lot to us creators, and we're excited to bring you more. Visit AndromedaProductions.com and see what's in store. If this is content you enjoy, please like, subscribe, and share on YouTube. I got an email from him, and once again, I hadn't spoken to him in probably since eighth grade. And he said, Dear Eric, um, um, of course, I'm paraphrasing here. He's like, Dear Eric, I was Googling myself, as one does, and I thought that was hilarious. Um, <laughs> and of course, his name was listed on, in my bio. And he said, you know, I have to tell you that at that time in my life, I was going through some tough times. I didn't know if I ever wanted to play music again. And I had actually given up uh, after leaving the school and uh, after working with you guys. And uh, I really thought that basically my life was not you know, as as much of an important thing as I as I as you have highlighted, and after reading the things that you've done and went on to do as a musician or whatever in the entertainment world, and the fact that you thank me for that early inspiration made me rethink that time and and realize that I probably did do good with my life and did do something worth paying forward. So now, I mean, we've kept in touch. I mean, we don't talk all the time, but we've kept in touch after that. And I just think it comes back to like some of the experiences we've had where we work in a booth, we work alone, we don't necessarily know. Oh, I see what you're saying. And we think like, you know, what am I doing? Some days are tougher than others. And, right. and then we get that feedback and we get that sort of, no, no, you've made a difference. You, you know, your, your work or your, the way you, when I finally got to meet you, you were kind. And we should never take that for granted because you never know good and bad, how you are affecting someone else. And Mike made a huge difference. Uh, I still have a picture. He let me play his, like, 1965 uh, Telecaster, which was this beautiful guitar. I like. He, he let me play in a rehearsal. I still have a picture of me at 12 years old, um, dressed like a complete preppy, playing this cool <laughs> rock and roll guitar. Um, it's one of my favorite pictures ever because you can see in that young man, like, how much I was seriously taking this in. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, it was not a joke to me. Right. This was like, wow, you know. So anyway, Mike, Mike Fogarty was probably number one. That's a great story. I love how it, you know, it, it starts with, you know, regular-ish school, but then goes outside of it, you know, because it, you know, you had to create that space for it. Yeah, I mean the fact that we didn't let him go. I mean, yeah, yeah, you could crowd him back in. Yeah, we were we were definitely, you know, um, it, and it was one of those things too where our parents were like, well, you know, you guys are taking this very seriously. Of course, we didn't have jobs at that time, <laughs> so it's like, you know, they they paid him and they paid the rehearsal space, and but that showed that the, the, these young men were were you know at that time taking it very seriously as as a band. Right, so, right, right. Know. So so what about you? What what do you think is one of your um, uh, if you have multiples, that's great. If not, or just one, that's great. But what what is what uh, one of your earlier mentor uh, experiences? Yeah, I do. Uh, but before I talk about them, I'd actually like to defer to someone else who has a lot of good information. Oh, okay, great. Do you know who I mean? No. Our helpful, wonderful wizard friend? Oh, right. Tips and tricks. Welcome to Wizardly Words of Wisdom. Recently, I was visiting one of my daughters on the Isle of Manhattan. She took me to one of her favorite clubs, and we were enjoying the joyous music and moving about, and she said something to me about oscillating my booty, to which I had to reply, 
I am a wizard, not a pirate. I know nothing of booties. But I do know a thing or two about dancing. First, find the rhythm. This is perhaps the most important part of at least looking like you're knowing what you're doing, and it couldn't be easier. Start by tapping your foot or snapping your fingers and let the rest of your body take you over. Number two, don't look at your feet. I promise you, your feet will hit the ground without the aid of your eye looking at them. There's no correlation. It's a gravity thing. And thirdly and finally, Dance with other people. It brings a different energy out of you. It's like a wonderful conversation you're all improvising at the same time. What fun my daughter and I had, dancing with Keisha and Jerome and Zuleika and Sugar Sugar and Fred. Thirdly and finally, I... Oh, dear. I keep losing track. Well, no matter. I'll give you one more, just because I like you. Relax and have fun! This is perhaps the most important thing. When you're enjoying yourself, you're a joy to the others around you. And it will prevent you from looking like you're trying to squeeze something out of your body unnaturally. Well, that's all I have for now. But I look forward to the next time I can share some wizardly words of wisdom. Yet again tips and tricks helpful in so many ways even just you know uh how to how to dance yeah how to dance uh you know and of course my mother being a dancer i i didn't have to mm. follow tips and tricks uh <laughs> advice i just listened to my mom uh, which is always good <laughs> advice um uh, speaking of uh, let's get back to what we were talking about earlier um so Oh, yeah, speaking, yeah. Of, speaking of mentors and those that can help you find your groove. Oh, um, I see what you did there. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> was there anyone in your life or many people in your life who helped you find yours? Well, I, I will touch on just a couple, um, but um, and it, it'll only take six hours. Oh, good. Great. Um, <laughs> so I think I really should be talking first about Joe Hart. He was a director slash teacher at Rutgers at the time I was there, happened to be married to one of my acting teachers, uh, Vicki Hart, who's still a very well-respected teacher. And Joe Hart, who passed away years ago, introduced me to the idea of Joseph Campbell and the power of myth, which I, well, that was an interview he did with Bill Moyers. But Joe Hart had studied with Joseph Campbell. Oh, and wow. Yeah, had... Now, I, to, to what degree, to how closely they were interacting, I can't really say. But, uh, but they, you know, he was at seminars, at least, that Joseph Campbell put on. Also, Joe Hart introduced me to the idea of thinking about the tarot as merely a structure within you can contemplate your life. And I thought with this show, The Heart of the Cards, <laughs> we're combining both of those ideas right. that were originally presented to me in one package in the form of Joe Hart, who was a great director and uh, also a playwright and, uh, yeah, a wonderful, wonderful man who influenced many people's creativity and creative development. So that's the first one. But the second one, the second one is a guy I won't name for privacy purposes. Mm -hmm. I had mentioned previously that I had a lot of psychological and emotional issues when I was, particularly when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So in that time, I had institutionalized myself, which meant that I was on a mental health unit with other adolescents, all of whom had attempted suicide. I did not. But apparently I was distressed enough that I fit in with the crowd. And 
that began my process of getting some kind of professional help for the things that I was struggling with. And after I left that environment, which was a very productive and supportive and really good thing for me to have had, I went from one therapist to another therapist, not quite finding the right fit. And a couple years later, I was going through a new low. And I got introduced to this guy who I worked with for about 10 years. And our sessions would be three times a week for many of those years. And when you work with somebody, especially through that span of your life, where you're going from mid-adolescence to your mid-20s, wherever that puts you, right. there's lots of development that goes on, or in my case, should have gone on. But I, I tried to make up for it. Anyway, so he was a great resource for me to not just learn one thing, but help me learn how to process and get perspective on, deal with, cope with so many things. I couldn't point to, oh, yeah, that's the maneuver I learned from my therapist. Right. I can't isolate in that way because it's more of an integrated way of thinking. So for me, also having grown up without a father, that was a tremendously beneficial way for me to get some attention to things that you would want from an older man when you're a when you're a younger man. Well, okay, well right? can I ask you a question because you're you're bringing up some very interesting things that I think um to me as a listener to your story, that's a very mature uh, decision to make. And how old were you when you decided that this was what you needed for yourself? Were you 12? No, I was like 16. I was institutionalized when I was 15. Right, you made that choice at 15 to do this. Um, which is also a very mature step for someone who is only 15. But I just think that the things that you found, I didn't, didn't want to interrupt the tale, but <laughs> the, the, the things that you found or, or the things that you were searching for, uh, very mature uh, topics to go in knowing that that's something that you needed at that age. Well, I, I would like to say it was because I was mature, but for me it was because everything was falling apart. So I was needing help. I was... It was obvious that I needed something more than what I had. Right, but you knew that this was an option. Well, there's that. That's true. And there are people, I guess, I don't really consider this, but it is true that there are people who would never think of going to therapy. There is a bias that you're, you're weak if you do, or a lot of people, I think, are also uncomfortable with the idea that they're going to be evaluated on a personal level by anybody else. Right. You know? I think there's been a shift in the years now. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, my every, every my, my mom, everyone I knew was in therapy right. g growing up in terms of, of, of adults. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it definitely was not as sort of uh, mainstream as it is now. But I, I just thought that was interesting that at, at such an early age, you kind of knew what you at least needed to search for, which uh, is very interesting as, as a young man. So anyway, please continue. Just to say that in the course of that work with him, there came a time where we mutually determined that I didn't need that support every, you know, three days a week or right. that sort of thing. Actually, long before that, years before that, really, uh, anybody who's gone through a constructive process of therapy will understand what I'm about to say, which is when you enter into the relationship, you're somewhat in a posture of dependency. You need it. You, you need it to help keep you together, uh, mm -hmm. right? But if it's a constructive process, eventually you realize you're not dependent on it, but you recognize the benefits from having somebody else help you work on stuff. Mm -hmm. When you look at it from that perspective, not a rescue me, but 
enhance me, plus me, right? Right. Um, there's there's a tremendous benefit to that. One of my best friends recently commented about how he likes to go to therapy when things are going well. Huh. Huh. <laughs> Not a lot of people would put you know make that connection, but I I got what he meant by that. Right. So anyway, I was about 26 when we decided to. Have, close the official relationship of therapist to patient or whatever client. Uh, I don't know what the proper term is. But because we'd known each other for so long, we uh, then had a friendship. And because we had concluded the therapy, there wasn't anything weird about that. So he's a person who's still in my life. And when my wife died, he was right there for me. And I still, you know, interact with him. And I know his family. So, yeah, it's been a really, really strong relationship in my life as well as a source of strength that's yeah that's great that's great he yeah. sounds he sounds like a very special person he's a total jerk though he's a complete <laughs> ass oh, but he, well, really he keeps it real about. he keeps it real <laughs> right he doesn't want to coddle me <laughs> well you know i think that that is a great place for us to wrap up the episode for today yeah for sure great cool this is the end of part one of episode two and uh next week what will we have uh, I don't know. what What's on the agenda? Episode 2, Part 2, baby. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to The Heart of the Cards with Dan Green and Eric Stewart. We hope this conversation in some way spoke to you. Whatever your journey, we look forward to crossing paths again in the next episode. This is Veronica Taylor, and on behalf of Adromeda Productions, we wish you well. Andromeda, always a sound choice.